We are going to begin here with what appears to be the largest abuse scandal to shake the American Catholic Church yet. After a two-year investigation, a Pennsylvania grand jury today alleged decades of abuse of children by more than 300 men described as predator priests. It detailed the accounts of more than 1,000 children but said there are likely thousands more victims. And the report says church leaders protected the priests in a cover-up that went all the way to the Vatican. If you wish to skip Jake and Richard's introduction to the Catholic Church episodes, please fast forward to the 10 minutes, 30 second marker of the podcast. You just heard audio from CBS Evening News. The voice you heard was CBS Evening News anchor Jeff Glore from a segment of their broadcast on August 14th, 2018, entitled Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report Details Alleged Priest Abuse. To start, if you choose to listen to these upcoming three episodes, please know that the subject matter you are about to hear is quite graphic. Due to the gravity of the story covered uh, on this three-part episode, Jake and I found the regular intro music to be inappropriate and instead have decided to play clips from that CBS Evening News segment intermittently throughout these episodes. You'll hear CBS Evening News anchor Jeff Glore, reporter Nikki Batiste, and Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro. This intro will play at the beginning of each episode. If you are struggling with the recent news surrounding the Catholic Church, we implore you to call the Mental Health Desk for the Wellness Center at 773-508-2530 or the Terry Student Center at the Water Tower Campus at 312-915-6360. Additionally, Father Jerry Overbeck can be reached at 312-915-7186. And if you for any reason need to report an incident of child sexual abuse, God forbid, the toll-free crisis hotline number for Darkness to Light, an organization dedicated to help children and adults needing local information or resources about sexual abuse can be reached at 866-367-5444. If you are having thoughts of suicide, please do not hesitate to pick up the phone and call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. We spoke to three separate members of the Loyola Chicago Law School community, including Nick Zouch, Amanda Burns, and Professor John Breen. These interviewed covered their personal experiences with Catholicism, as well as the current controversies surrounding the Catholic Church. We approached these interviews with great care, humility, and at times, some levity. We would like to take this time to thank all our three guests for agreeing to speak with us. For those who have not heard of the recent scandal surrounding the Catholic Church, allow us to give a brief synopsis. There are two separate stories. The first is regarding a Pennsylvania grand jury indictment which listed 301 priests and over 1,000 child victims. The second is regarding Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, who has been alleged to have used his authority to sexually harass and abuse young seminarians as well as minors, allegations which Archbishop Carlo Maria Vagano claims that Pope both Pope Benedict XVI and Pope Francis were aware of for years. The details of both stories are quite damning. In regard to the Pennsylvania grand jury indictment, Richard and I will read a few excerpts 
which have been detailed in an article by the New York Times on August 14, 2018, in an article entitled Catholic Church Sexual Abuse Scandal, Seven Excerpts from the Grand Jury Report. The New York Times writes, those cases include a priest who the grand jury says raped a seven-year-old girl while visiting her in the hospital after she got her tonsils out. Another priest made a nine-year-old boy give him oral sex, then rinsed the boy's mouth out with holy water to purify him. The indictment reads, One priest was willing to admit to molesting boys, but denied reports from two girls who had been abused. Quote, they don't have a penis, end quote, he explained. Another priest asked about uh, abusing his parishioners, refused to comment. With my history, he said, anything is possible. Yet another priest finally decided to quit after years of child abuse complaints, but asked for and received a letter of reference for his next job at Walt Disney World. The article states the grand jury used strong language to hold leaders of the church accountable for enabling and protecting the abusers. The indictment reads, what we can say, though, is that despite some institutional reform, individual leaders of the church have largely escaped public accountability. Priests were raping little boys and girls, and the men of God who were responsible for them not only did nothing, they hid it all for decades. Monsignors, auxiliary bishops, bishops, archbishops, cardinals have mostly been protected. Many, including named in the, those named in this report, have been promoted. Until that changes, we think it is too early to close the book on the Catholic Church sex scandal. The indictment reads, In another case, a priest raped a girl, got her pregnant, and arranged an abortion. The bishop expressed his feelings in a letter. Quote, This is a difficult time in your life, and I realize how upset you are. I, too, share your grief. End quote. But... The letter was not for the girl. It was addressed to the rapist. On June 28, 2003, a second known victim wrote a statement detailing the sexual abuse committed by Reverend Edward R. Graff on him. The second known victim indicated the, the abuse occurred in the rectory of the Holy Guardian Angels Elementary and Middle School when the second victim was in the seventh grade. The second victim detailed the grooming techniques of Graff. After a grooming period, Graff had him take his pants down and sit down. Graff then fondled the second victim's penis as Graff masturbated. According to the second victim, when he questioned Graff about the abuse, Graff responded by telling the second victim that it was, quote, okay because he was, quote, an instrument of God. The second victim indicated the abuse occurred over the six, next six months as Graff would have the second victim come into his room where Graff would masturbate both himself and the second victim. The second victim believed his friends and other boys were also abused by Graff during the same period. However, the Dietian statement stands in stark contrast to the evidence held within the records of the diocese. While the diocese stated that they were surprised, internal records documenting the opinions of the bishops showed constant references to Graff as being a risk, a concern, and a legal liability. This language was much more consistent with language used in re relation to predatory priests than a priest with a drinking problem. In another instance, one priest was accused of abusing many members of the same family during the 1980s. The indictment reads, at St. John the Evangelist Church, Gaela met a family who warmly embraced him as their parish priest. The family included eight girls and one boy. Gaela began sexually abusing the girls, 
almost immediately upon his appointment to the parish. Gaela sexually abused five of the eight girls. Gaela also abused other relatives of the family. His conduct included a wide array of crimes cognizable as misdemeanors or felonies under Pennsylvania law. The grand jury also uncovered a ring of predatory priests who shared intelligence or information regarding victims, created pornography using the victims, and exchanged victims among themselves. The indictment reads, George recalled that each of these priests had a group of favored boys who they would take on trips. The boys received gifts, specifically gold cross necklaces. George stated, the priest told me that they, the priest, would give their boys, their altar boys, or their favorite boys, these crosses. So he gave me a big gold cross to wear. The grand jury observed that these crosses served as another purpose beyond grooming of the victims. They were a visible designation that these victims were victims of sexual abuse. They were a signal to other predators that the children had been desensitized to sexual abuse and were optimal targets for further victimization. The other controversy, as previously mentioned, involves Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. This story is not as detailed as the Pennsylvania grand jury indictment, but the scandal still has shaken the Catholic Church and beyond, as it is the first time sexual abuse cover-up allegations have gone as high as the Pope. Cardinal McCarrick is accused of, quote, inappropriately touching men and boys as young as 11. The New York Times reported that between 1994 and 2008, there were multiple reports about the Cardinal's alleged misconduct with adult seminary students made to American bishops, the Pope's representative in Washington, and Pope Benedict XVI. The allegations state the church officials have not only known for decades about McCarrick's abuse allegations, but have even gone so far as to pay off the alleged victims for their silence. One victim, former priest Robert Sholek, claims that the church paid him $80,000 for agreeing not to speak to the media. McCarrick was very close to Pope John Paul II and spent times with President George W. and First Lady Laura Bush, as well as Secretary of State John Kerry. He was also a regular guest on Meet the Press. He was seen as a, quote, liberal Catholic, but had conservative views on abortion. Because of the sheer volume of information for both of these accusations, certain things are bound to fall through the cracks. As Jake and I attempted to keep these two stories separated in discussions, there are times where ourselves and our guests reference details of the accusations incorrectly. For that, we apologize. We'll now play for you an interview with one of our three guests. For the victims here today, Pennsylvania's statute of limitations makes their cases too old to be prosecuted. Would an elimination of the statute of limitations be justice for the victims? There should be no statute of limitations to bring criminal charges in Pennsylvania when it comes to child sexual abuse. The majority of the named priests are dead. Still, as a result of the investigation, two priests have been criminally charged, including one who has pled guilty. All right, for this episode, we have Professor John Breen, who is the Georgia Reithal Professor of Law at Loyola Chicago. As an undergraduate, Professor Breen studied the great books while majoring in Notre Dame's program of liberal studies, where he graduated with honors, and then attended Harvard Law School, where he became a member of the Board of Student Advisors, teaching uh, research and writing to first-year law students. After graduating, from Harvard Law, Professor Breen clerked for Judge Boyce Martin of the United States 
Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. And after his clerkship, he practiced law at Sydney, Sidley and Austin in Chicago, specializing in commercial litigation. Before Loyola, he was an associate visiting professor at Michigan State's Detroit College of Law. And at Loyola, he teaches contracts, jurisprudence, perspective of the, uh, on the law and justice, jurisprudence, the Catholic social tradition, negotiable instruments, sales, and professional responsibility, which I'm currently in. I don't teach all those all at the same time. No. But, uh, and some there of those I haven't taught for a couple of years, but yeah. Well, they were on the website. That's on the line. <laughs> I didn't realize you had taught jurisprudence. That's been my favorite class in law school so far. I had uh, Vincent Samar. I don't know if you are familiar. I don't know. Yeah, yeah he's actually, I think, also a Harvard Law grad. Okay. But that was the first class that really made everything kind of fall into place for me. And I know that they do, I think they front load jurisprudence at UChicago Law or some class similar to it. And I think that that is a well-advised position because... Go ahead. No, no, they they may. I'm I'm not sure about that. Um, you know, I think that there's I think there's something to be said about that uh, for uh, introducing students to you know the big questions about law. What the, right. What's the nature of law? What's the nature of legal obligation? What are rights? Where do they come from? Those are the big uh, questions of jurisprudence. You know, what's the relationship between law and morality? Those are the big questions of of, of jurisprudence. And I think every student ought to be. Uh, introduced to those questions and, and introduced to the answers that people have come up with over the years, both in the Anglo-American Anglo-American tradition uh, and in other legal traditions as well. Um, I, I, there's a question in terms of what's the best time in the law school curriculum to do that. I, mean, mm. I think that there's a lot to be said for doing it in the first year. Therefore, you have sort of the tools or the the, the intellectual uh, tools to sort of think about uh, your doctrinal classes as you go through. Um, I think it's also pretty typical. A lot of law schools, it's first of all, it's an elective. Mm -hmm. but there's only a few schools that actually require it. Mm. Um, um, but, but it's usually elective, and usually elective in the third year is sort of a capstone course. Okay, look back and think about this now. Yeah, well, I, I like I, I always say this, but nobody ever asked me this question. But if somebody asked me this question, which class do you wish you could go back and take again, knowing mm -hmm. what you know now? Mm -hmm. I would say constitutional law because of jurisprudence and like the ability to think in these big ideas, these narrative settings, like that constitutional law really requires a, out of you. Uh, it's almost a shame that you take that without having that foundation behind you to like realize the the history steeped in these opinions that you're reading and trying to dissect and parse out. Or maybe sometimes the absence of a history. Oh yeah, really sure, yeah, or just the arbitrary nature of them, right? Like either way, like wherever the shoe drops, I mean, I think that it's it's such a shame that more people don't even first know what jurisprudence is right. and like know that Loyola offers it and then most of them will never stumble their way into the classroom, so it is a shame. It, I agree. I actually wrote about this. Um, so I'm currently working on a book. It's on the history of uh, Catholic legal education. So there are, uh, in the United States, there are about 20, 200 ABA-accredited uh, law schools. 29 of them are operated under Catholic auspices. Mm -hmm. And you think that they'd be, you know, aside from the name on the door, that they're Catholic, right, that they're... Uh, were, were founded by Jesuits, where 14 of them are Jesuit-sponsored right. schools. Mm. You, you think beside the name, there'd be something in the work of the school that would set them apart. Mm. And uh, it used to be the case, no longer the case, it used to be the case that um, they emphasized jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. uh, and That's jurisprudence generally, but th there was a tradition of, of, of certainly of, of emphasizing the natural law tradition of jurisprudence. Right, yeah, sure. Um, uh, because although, strictly speaking, that's 
not a Catholic thing, but it's it has a sort of roots in the Catholic intellectual right. Yeah, like sure. the Lockean tradition. It's well, it is kind of it precedes Locke. I mean, going back to right. Aquinas and Augustine, and even mm-hmm. back there, it goes to Cicero. It, Aristotle and traces of it in Aristotle and Homer. Right. right. Well, I guess this idea that humans do have this intrinsic self worth or like have some intrinsic value to them, that kind of is a revelatory idea, right? I mean, it's not self evident in the law itself, I would think. And so, a lot of these like formations of natural rights that are later codified, like in the Bill of Rights, uh, definitely do. I think probably have their roots in a Judeo-Christian value system. They definitely do. Right. They, they did not just sort of spring out of nowhere. Exactly. Right? I mean, they, they are, they're part of the West, and the West the West as an intellectual tradition, as a cultural phenomenon, is informed by um, Christianity and its predecessor, Judaism. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. Right. Uh, and, well, that could... <laughs> There's something to be said for sort of the suggestion nowadays that well we just have these ideas, sure, yeah. Um, but you're sort of living off the fumes of the past, where right. you've already taken the gasoline out of the tank. Right. You're you're building a house with bricks that they gave you, right? Correct. Basically. That you've uh. demolished and you've exactly you're just right. assembling them now on your own, right? So, um, so I think that there's a lot to be said for. In fact, I actually proposed to the faculty a number of years ago that we require jurisprudence here mm-hmm. again and again that it would be. Uh, a broad class, which is actually how I teach the class, or one of the courses that taught it in a number of different sort of formats. But one is a sort of general introduction to um, to jurisprudence. So mm-hmm. you know, there's law and economics, and there's Rawlsian uh, sure, theory yeah, of the justice, veil of ignorance, all cor- that. Yeah. Correct, um, and sort of contractarian um, a form of uh, or, uh, thinking about how justice is conceived. To um, so different schools, including the natural law tradition, and I'm uh, which can be taught sort of classically, going back to Aquinas uh, or or one of his sort of modern uh, interpreters like Joseph Pieper. I've used his text before, um, or you could just use it basing uh, based off of the uh, um, the modern Catholic social tradition, which is their magisterial documents that come from popes or bishops or mm-hmm. councils, um, but they talk about what's the nature what's the nature of justice what's the relationship between law and justice sure yeah and, right. and specifically in the context of particular social problems so I think I kind of derailed the conversation from where we wanted to uh, start off but uh, Richard what just backtrack is do you have a title for the book yet um, we do have a working title I say we because I have a, a, okay. a co-author on the on the book um, his name is Lee Strang, and he's a professor at the University of Toledo uh, School of Law. Um, he and I have already published five or six, and we actually have a couple more coming out, articles that are um, serve as essentially um, drafts of chapters for the book. The working title for the book is A Light Unseen, uh, The okay. History of Catholic uh, Legal Education in the United States. Interesting. Okay. A light unseen coming light to unseen. stores near you. <laughs> uh, shameless, shameless plug. Yeah. Uh, so you no we, longer we can do another podcast yeah. when the book comes out. Huh? Yeah, so, yeah. Have a, there we go. We'll do that. You also, yeah, we also. Um, <laughs> the website had the jurisprudence classes that you no longer teach on there. It also had your office wrong. So whoever manages that, <laughs> please update. Uh, <laughs> Having lots um, of problems. Yeah. So uh, we wanted to start with basically your. Catholic upbringing. You were, were you born into the church, raised into? I, I was. Okay. So I'm uh, born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Um, which actually is a little different in the sense that, um, in terms of its, its, uh, uh, the sort of uh, 
religious identity, I, for lack of a better term, for the for the city and for the state. I mean, like most of the South, it's most more Baptist than mm. Methodist. Mm -hmm. right. um, but Louisville actually is about third Catholic, um, and uh, so it's a little different from a lot of the South. I mean, historically, I mean, the South is a little different now. I mean, you think of something like Miami. Yes. Yeah. You know, with all the, the Cuban and other Hispanic population there, it's it's very Catholic in a lot of ways. And New Orleans traditionally has been very much a, a Catholic town. Yeah, the French, um, with right. the French and right. the Spaniards, it's it's, it's it's a beautiful city because it has all those influences: French, Spanish, English, right? Right. All those things. Right. Um, but Louisville actually was town. was yeah. uh, it is a great town, <laughs> a great town. Yeah. Um, but Louisville actually. Um, was one of the first four dioceses in the Catholic diocese in the country, or I should mm -hmm. say, first five dioceses in the country. The very first one is uh, is Baltimore, so that's sort of the mother church of uh, of for Catholics in in the U.S. The okay. Archdiocese of Baltimore. In 1808, the Pope um, raised the diocese of Baltimore. Back then, it was the only diocese in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, raised it to the status of an archdiocese, and then erected or created four new dioceses. Um, the Diocese of Boston, uh, Philadelphia, New York, and Bardstown, Kentucky, uh, which is a little town uh, about 50 miles south of Louisville. Mm -hmm. um, it's the heart of bourbon country, and actually there's a close connection between bourbon and Catholicism um, because it was settled by... Yeah, we're getting into that. <laughs> it was, well, there's, there's, so I take it that you have bourbon in your office, yeah, there, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, is it the uh, pot still? Yes, the the gray whiskey. There's a close connection between the two because the, the reason why I had um, a sort of concentration of Catholic population in Kentucky mm -hmm. was they moved from from Maryland, which Maryland was you know the, the a lot of the original colony, thirteen colonies had religious identities, uh -huh. uh, and Maryland was Maryland. It was named after Queen Mary, but King Henry VIII's daughter, but then also. She's named after mom. She's named right. after the Blessed Mother. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, um, actually, Maryland enjoyed great religious tolerance. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the political community changed, and actually Catholics were no longer welcome. That's when a lot of them moved west for elbow room, and yeah. they settled uh, a guy named Basil Hayden led about 30 families. Well, the whiskey's named after him, actually. Yeah. He, he is old granddad. On, yeah. uh, that's another whiskey, but uh, yeah. the, 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 the formula goes back to his, I think, his grandson. Um, but, I knew but now, none of this going now this. The, <laughs> the beam, uh, beam Company, one of their small batch bourbons, is Basil Hayden. It's named after... Richard, are you going to convert uh, now? Basil <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sticking with it, but... Uh, <laughs> but I do. I do have a newfound appreciation for Catholicism. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So a lot, a lot of families. Willett was a family, yeah. a Catholic family. The Medleys, a, a Catholic family. There's a, a bunch that they all they brought their whiskey making with them when they uh, moved to the west, uh, the Kentucky wilderness, and settled around Bardstown. So, huh. um, so the sea, the 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 sea, and I should say, I guess for our, our listeners who aren't familiar with this, so the church is organized in dioceses, which is essentially a jurisdiction, which is overseen by a bishop. And uh, a bishop is um, 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 the overseer of the local church. Mm -hmm. he, he is a priest, and it's the faith of the church that the bishops are the successors to the apostles. Okay. Uh, including, right, the bishop of Rome, um, otherwise known as the pope. Uh, Papa is the familiar, right, that he's your father, the holy father. Um, he is the successor to St. Peter. And the reason why he's seen as St. Peter, because, well, Peter 
came from Jerusalem, right, um, to Rome, which was then the center of uh, Western civilization, really the center of the world, right, because it was the capital of the Roman Empire, yeah. uh, to evangelize, right, to spread the good news, to spread the news of the gospel. Um, and he was martyred there. He, he died there. Um, and so Rome is sort of consecrated by the blood of the martyrs, including uh, both Peter and Paul mm-hmm. were both martyred there. And uh, the Pope is the successor to Peter, who was the bishop, the leader of the local church in Rome. Um, this might be a little outside. It's inside the scope, but outside of the, this particular conversation, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sure. Uh, then how did the Vatican come about? Why, would, why was there a need for a separate city or a separate outside of Rome? Oh, so, um, you know, strictly speaking, I guess if you look geographically, it's not outside yeah. of Rome, it's in the heart of Rome. Yeah. Um, but yeah. um, so for, for um, well, if you go back and look at the history of the church, um, there were uh, many times in which there was kind of no civil authority mm-hmm. uh, during the, the late Middle Ages and where the Pope essentially functioned as the, as the political leader as well. That later evolved into what was called the Papal States, Okay. Uh, where there were several regions of Italy that were, there was no Italian state at the time. Instead, there were a number of different principalities, right? The Prince of Lombard and uh, of the Naples. And there was no one country as we now know it, like Italy. Um, there are these different different states. I mean, the same thing is true for lots of parts of Europe, right? There was a, a period when there was no, there was no France, right? There were, there were different Tribes and tribes and fiefdoms, right? right. That different people had control over. Like same thing with with England. There was a period of sort of unification. Well, Italian unification didn't come until the 19th century, Um, and um, one of the obstacles to papal uh, or excuse me to Italian unification was the papal states. There were a number of regions in Italy that were directly under their control. Uh, So he wasn't simply a spiritual head. He was he was a, a governmental leader. That exists now, but on a much more limited role. Um, so it's just the Vatican City State, okay. which is its own country, right? As a, you know, a, belongs to the UN and is a is a is a sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. Um, but that came out of the Lateran Treaty, which was a treaty between uh, Mussolini and and, and, and the Pope. Um, where, yeah. So I, I forget the date of that. Uh, some 1929, I think. Um, so that's how we have the modern Vatican City State. That was a result of, though, the loss of the Papal States when uh, the uh, Italians finally got their act together and, right. and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, took over those territories. Uh, and then the right. Pope was for a while the so-called the prisoner of the Vatican. It wasn't until the latter treaty that uh, made the peace with, with uh, the modern Italian state. Okay. In terms of, uh, so, but let me just add one other no, thing. Ahead. So the reason, uh, I mean, you can, and there have been many. You can go back and look at the history of the church again, and uh, the history of of the papacy. That it's full of saints, beginning with Peter, mm-hmm. uh, and sinners, uh, and like Pope Julius II, who's out there leading armies and having children, and making his children cardinals. Um, so I mean. It, it, you can see that in through through the history of the church, there sometimes have been popes who have been acted actually less as spiritual leaders and more as sort of secular political uh, leaders. Have, and having said that, the reason why there's a a Vatican City state mm-hmm. and the 
justification for the form of papal states was it's a way of ensuring the independence of the church. Okay, um, that makes sense. I mean, you can see even in modern times, right? I mean, it, people want to control the papacy. Yeah. They do. I mean, right? Hitler almost uh, had a plot to take uh, Pope uh, Pius XII prisoner. Napoleon did. That, that would have. Napoleon did you know, uh, I mean, capture Hitler the Pope. didn't have a lot of popular moves. No, <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that one going over well. Yeah, I don't think he was really worried about the polls. Yeah, his uh, uh, polling yeah, numbers. Right, I don't right, think right. so. Yeah, that's, you know, most uh, dictators don't. Yeah, right. Sure. Um, but uh, or they just fake them. Yeah. So it's a me- it's a it's a mechanism even now as of ensuring sort of the independence of, of the church. Like I said, even Napoleon took the took the Pope, you know, mm-hmm. captive because uh, gotcha. they wanted. They they want sometimes the authority of the church behind them, and sometimes that's the only way they can achieve that is through coercive means. I had a kind of a technical question: was do you know who's responsible for the Vatican's national security? Like, because oh, it made me think when you when they made a pact with Mussolini that several years later Mussolini would have many different implications uh, in terms of. World War Two. Um, yeah, I can't. I can't claim to be an expert on this. Right, right, um, right. There is the Swiss Guard, which um, uh-huh. uh, I mean is a real security force. I mean, you, you see them at at uh, papal functions and stuff, and they have they wear these elaborate uh, sort of Renaissance style uniforms. Mm-hmm. Right, they're very colorful. Right. Um, but I mean, they are an actual right. not an army so much police force uh, mm-hmm. that engages. Uh, Security for for the Pope, although I do think that's also done in consultation with the Italian state. Yeah, I'd have to imagine. Okay. Um, we will, so, so I'm born yeah. and raised Catholic. So <laughs> from that was right. there we go. That was my next um, question. Yeah, born and raised. So yeah, um, uh, I you know the the wonderful thing about the church, or one of the wonderful things about the church, is it is you know Catholic and Catholic, and Catholic with a capital C, so it refers to the church per se, but the word means universal, mm-hmm. uh, because the gospel, right, the the good news of Christianity is supposed to go out to all the people, right. I mean, you think about it, if you have news that's good, you want to share it. That's yeah. the whole idea of evangelization, of, of sharing the good news. Hey, this is I can't keep this to myself. I want you to be a part of it too. Yeah. Um, so um, it does. It touches. Uh, I mean, if you look at the churches on uh, all the continents of the world and involves really every ethnicity, um, here in the United States, because we are such a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural society, that's reflected in the church. So, you know, the mother church, Baltimore, was a bunch of English Catholics, fled persecution from England, you know, came here, enjoyed the freedom that they did. Um, but, you know, the, there are lots of, of, of German Catholics, of Polish Catholics, of... Irish Catholics, of which I am one. Uh, mm-hmm. My father actually immigrated. Uh, yeah. And uh, also on my mother's side, I'm part Irish and part Lebanese. So the Lebanese, Lebanon is like the one Arab country that used yeah. to have a majority uh, Christian population that uh, unfortunately uh, does not anymore. Um, I saw that you were on the... Uh, Arab American Bar Association. Yeah, Arab American yeah, Bar Association. Yeah, we have a, a bar association here in Chicago, which is a wonderful mm-hmm. organization. It's about half Christian, half Muslim, uh, reflecting the the Arab, uh, Arab American population here in the in the area. Um, but yeah, I'm a founding member and a, and a past president of that. So, um, but you know, there especially now you think of the makeup of the U.S. Uh, Catholic population. So much of it is from the is from the, the South, right? Mm-hmm. Because of all the Mexican immigration that we've been blessed to have here, mm-hmm. and uh, people from Central America as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even even there, I mean, a lot of people from the Philippines. So it's a it is a it is a global church. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, 
So how have, it's hard to look at your resume not seeing how it has your your experience with the church growing up present day has shaped not only your professional career but I would venture to guess your entire identity. Sure. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, I think, um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of what religion does. But it most does. people don't uh, kind of, how do I put this, tailor a, or not even tailor, have a career that is so involved in their religion as well. Or like you're, in, you're a law professor, but you also have done, you've been published on, and shoot, every legal uh, journal at every Catholic school in the country uh, that I can not, see. Not quite. The major ones. But, uh, um, and, and yeah. I mean, you, well, part of that is. Yeah. And then your involvement in other activities and things. Some yeah. of the things I've written about have been engaging with the Catholic intellectual tradition huh. or specifically Catholic social thought. So, so just to define what that means for, for, uh, for people who may not know, Catholic social thought is this body, this literature of church documents, either that a bishop has written or a council has written, or more often a pope has written in a letter. Uh, the letter is typically called an encyclical because it goes around, it goes around to all the bishops saying, hey, I've thought about this and I want to share my thoughts with you. Um, and usually involve, um, uh, for the social, I mean, the encyclical, an encyclical per se could address almost any topic, but the social encyclicals address uh, social problems. So the the you could say that, that so that's it's, a perfect segue. It, it, it's an effort yeah. to sort of in, it, say what does the what is the gospel? What does the faith? What does um, um, have to say about the problems we're confronting today? You could say that that's a tradition that goes all the way back to Pentecost, mm -hmm. really. Um, but the modern Catholic social tradition goes back to a letter. An encyclical by Pope Leo the Thirteenth in eighteen ninety one. Okay. And the title is Rerum Novarum. Now the title of these documents they're usually in Latin from the first sort of major phrase in the first sentence yeah. of the document is you know, they have a formal title but their informal title is this and it usually goes by that. So Rerum Novarum means new things. So in eighteen ninety one the new things that Pope Leo was looking at was well industrialization had taken hold right mm -hmm. had you know, really change the way economies function and how societies are structured. So industrialization, urbanization, um, or and these had significant effects on ordinary folks, on ordinary people, sure. including Catholics, but everybody really. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, how how labor had moved from you know moved from a largely agrarian society to an industrial society, from from a rural setting into an urban setting, and where you had the before, where the, the the basic economic unit had been the family, well, now you simply had wage earners, and this had a tremendous effect on on people, on the stability of the family, mm -hmm. um, and industrialization had an effect on in terms of well, were wages fa being paid on a fair basis, and was safety being recognized? Those are the new things that Pope Leo was addressing in uh, in his letter, and this has been a tradition since then. Um, so each successive pope since Leo has has uh, has addressed the, the social problems of the day in a letter, up until uh, even the, the current pope. Okay, you want to want to take this? Or what? You want me to just jump in? I was gonna. I, you hadn't gotten one in in a while. I was gonna. 
No, I think uh, let's just not beat around the bush. So part of the reason we wanted to have you on for this show is this is part of a three-part series that Richard and I have been doing on the recent scandals. Mm. And obviously um, the details are horrific. Um, I think the aftermath has been discouraging to more secular onlookers like myself. Not Uh, just you. Right, no, but like, and I would say that that would probably multiply ten times for somebody who has such loyalty to the institution. let me, th- yeah, I, I think, the, so we've interviewed two other Catholics. Oh, okay. And well, I think the, one's a former Catholic. Yeah, one's a former Catholic. That, that's, who are here at yeah, Loyola? Or yeah, who are both here at Loyola. Everybody, students, we, everybody yeah. we speak to is in, within Loyola. Uh-huh. Or like was, has graduated. In or, the orbit. Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. In the, in the community. But we're, um, it's obvious to get an opinion from someone who's an outsider looking in. So the three-part series is kind of from people who are, have been in the Catholic community. That sure. was the whole point. Sure. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess, uh, what do you make of all this? Uh, uh, this is obviously coming on the heels of the spotlight scandal. Scandals and dioceses, I think, like, you know, just speckled around the country. And uh, this is the greatest magnitude um, that I think we've seen. And it's just, it's breathtaking. And I guess, you as a Catholic, what does this do to your faith and what does this uh, I don't know how to articulate the question Richard uh, first I, off let's, no, let's no, I think with, I can answer that yeah, yeah okay yeah. so I, I um, uh, I'd say sort of my reaction right as a, as a Catholic is I find this utterly appalling mm-hmm. uh, I mean uh, um, Archbishop uh, Ganschwein, who was the uh, the last Pope, so Pope Emeritus Benedict's uh, private secretary. I mean, he made a comment. It was it was uh, reported a day or two ago. He referred to uh, this scandal as the Church's 9/11, and. Uh, Prescient. I said prescient. Well, in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, there there are distinctions you can draw between the two, and Mm -hmm. there are some people that criticized him for using that metaphor, but it's a metaphor, right? right? But it's it's a catastrophic event, uh, or that was a singular event. Uh That that the 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 scandal in the church is is over a number of years and even decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, also it, left people's lives in shambles like 9-11 did. Yeah. Correct. Okay. No, correct. I can, destroyed a lot of lives. Yeah, right. and, uh, I can see it. I can also see it as a controversy. Yeah, <laughs> sure. no, right. It's like yeah. when people co-opted the hashtag strong thing after the Boston bombing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. No, right. right. Um, so you know, a metaphor, an imperfect metaphor, and obviously sure. draw yeah. distinctions. Um, so, but I mean, I think it's just, it's, it, it is a catastrophe, mm-hmm. uh, and it will have, um, well, we'll see what effects it has. I mean, right. hopefully it will lead to, I think, uh, speaking with someone who's, who's, uh, my, my faith is not shaken, I would say that. I'm, so I'm okay. still, still four square, mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. the church with both feet. Um, that's not to say my, my, my faith isn't shaken. My faith, my belief in what the church proposes to be true is not shaken right. uh, because I believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, my faith in individuals, in people, that's shaken. Right. right. Um, certainly, the perpetrators I have no faith in them. Right. Um, and the people that are have been accused and have sort of responded in the way that they have, yeah, my, including the Pope. I'm sorry to say, uh, is is shaken. But I mean, I, I, I'm not a Catholic because. I, I, I like Francis. Right. Right. right, right. Uh, or I like this priest or that bishop. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. The only person that you're concerned with in the church, right, the only person you, sh- you must have faith in is Jesus Christ. Right, right. Uh, not any other human being. 
Francis's role in all of this has been so interesting up to this point because apparently he made some statement in Ireland. I, I don't think I ever found what the substance of that statement is, but I don't think that there's been a sufficient... I think he asked for people to pray for the church. Right. I found a little odd. Yeah, right, that, that the one church. Of the, one of the few statements he's made, that was the statement. But yeah, he's made, and, a, he's made yeah. a couple of statements. So um, the... Well, maybe just maybe to uh, just lay out some of the, the, the timeline of events. Yeah, could you? Okay. Yeah. And uh, the the timeline goes back a ways because you mentioned you said that you called it the Spotlight scandal, which I think it's an interesting way to refer to it. Uh, there was this film Spotlight that was based upon the scandal uh, of the child sex abuse that came out in the Bar- Boston Archdiocese right. in two thousand two. Right. Um, and you know, shortly after that, there were all these other suits, and that that, that came to light because of well, because of the uh, journalism of because of the Boston Globe story. But then also there are a number of suits, lawsuits that were filed, mm-hmm. uh, and that's in, and I would say as a Catholic, that's one of the sad things about this that. Uh, when reform has come, it's been really through uh, people outside the church, right? Uh, who may not have really the church's best interest in mind, mm-hmm. um, but nevertheless, what they've accomplished has been a good thing because it's brought the truth to light and right. it's uncovered corruption and it's it's tried to uh, bring some healing to victims. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what happened in Boston. Um, but then there were out, there were similar stories in, in several other uh, dioceses as well, including Los Angeles. So the bishops of the United States, um, there's there's what's called the, the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So it's all the bishops, and they gather they gather twice a year. They gathered for a meeting about this, and they they uh, in Dallas was where they met, and so they drafted what's called the Dallas Charter, uh-huh. which was uh, set forth a series of, of procedures. Uh, for dealing with allegations of child sex abuse, because what the what the Boston um, uh, uh, scandal had revealed was that you had bishops who had you know there had been an allegation of of molestation or abuse by a priest, mm-hmm. and this made its way to the bishop, and the bishop said, we'll take care of it. And it was usually handled on a confidential basis. And there, there may have been some sort of payment uh, for damages uh, uh, to, the, to the family. That may have been the case. Um, but it was usually handled on a sort of confidential basis. Yeah. They sent the priest to some treatment center. He got treatment. Uh, and they certified he's okay to go back into ministry and he was moved to another parish without right. alerting the new parish what happened. Right. And then unfortunately, the recidivism rate was quite high. They molested again. Mm-hmm. So that was a pattern. Mm-hmm. And there was never any effort to report this person to right. civil authorities, even though what they were engaged in was a crime. Mm-hmm. So this went on, and this was the pattern. The Dallas Charter was a response to that. We're going to report to civil authorities. Mm-hmm. There's going to be an automatic suspension. There's not going to be a shuffling around of the priest from one place to another. So these procedures were set in place. So what the Dallas Charter did not address, and really why the current scandal is a continuation of that, is because it only addressed the Future. activity of priests. Yeah. It didn't address responsibility of bishops mm-hmm. who had, right, like Cardinal Law, who was Archbishop of Boston, like Cardinal Mahoney, who was Archbishop of Los Angeles, had covered up uh, this, you know, I, I, it's hard to come up with the right word, this evil mm-hmm. that had been per- perpetrated by priests. 
Um, so, in a way, the current scandal is a is a continuation of that scandal because mm-hmm. there were these questions, these issues that went unanswered. Now, the genesis of the current scandal is this. So, in I think it was January, February, so there was an allegation against uh, Theodore McCarrick, who was the uh, retired emeritus archbishop of Washington, D.C. Right. Very popular man, very charismatic, charming person. Um, the allegation was uh, that he had molested uh, two teenage boys uh, years ago when he was a priest um, in, uh, in New York. And this allegation was, following the Dallas Charter, was uh, proven to be true. And so he was removed from ministry. Well, this is reported to Rome, and then he is then asked to resign from the cardinal, uh, from the College of Cardinals. So, and just again to sort of clarify what a cardinal is, so, um, and really I guess what a priest is, because people may not know. So the church <coughs> believes in uh, seven sacraments. Uh, these are physical signs that are sources of, of grace, right? Okay. That helps you in your relationship with God, to help you live a holy life. Um, you know, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, uh, penance, um, um, or, or reconciliation, uh, matrimony, um, um, the anointing of the sick, and holy orders. Holy orders is the sacrament you receive when you become a priest. And you're a priest, not a minister, although you do minister to people, but why the title priest is, is called, because it, it harkens back to and actually is seen as a, a continuation of the ancient Jewish priesthood. What did the priest do in the, um, you know, prior to the destruction of the, of the temple? Uh, what did a priest do? A priest offered sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what a Catholic priest does. And it's not simply a table, it's an altar, because it sacrifices is offered on, on it. Sacrifice to God. What is the sacrifice? Well, it's the re-presentation of the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. That's why the host, the bread, and the wine are consecrated separately. When you divide bread, when you divide, when you divide flesh and blood, you have death. Um, so the... The, the, the belief in both the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church as well. We, we, we have this in, in uh, share this, uh, this the sacrament in common um, with, our, with our separated uh, brothers and sisters in the Orthodox Churches, the Russian, Greek um, churches, um, is that you believe that um, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. So you receive God. You're saying yes to this enormous gift. Uh, to God. Um, you're saying yes to the love that's represented on and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So it's a priest that offers sacrifice. That's why they're called a priest. Um, in the sacrament of orders, there's another aspect to it. There's three aspects. There's the diaconate, the priesthood, Presbyterian, and uh, the episcopacy, mm-hmm. bishops. So deacons, priests, and bishops are all aspects of, of the sacrament of orders. So um, only a priest then can be consecrated a bishop, and a bishop is essentially like head priest, right? They head the diocese, the local church, mm-hmm. uh, and oversee. Actually, the Greek word episkopos means overseer. They oversee them all, and they, they, they govern the local church, they sanctify uh, through their, their priestly ministry, and they teach. Uh, they teach the faith. So um, the, 
there is no the, to be a pope is not there's no the pope is not a pope or being the pope is not a uh, he's only a bishop mm-hmm. it's not a different role it's not a different sacrament you're simply the bishop of rome yeah mm-hmm. uh, a cardinal now there's uh, where we get to Sorry, this is a bit of a tangent. That's all right. How do you get to be a, a cardinal? A cardinal uh, is simply, well, they're all bishops, although historically there have been lay cardinals. Um, but their primary job is to elect the next pope. Mm-hmm. So when the pope dies, right, that there's what's called an interregnum, right, between rule, between reigns. One pope's dead, another one hasn't, hasn't, we don't have a new pope. You know, it's not like a monarchy where, you know, your heir You're automatically anointed, becomes. Yeah, right. Uh, becomes the king or queen, um, they elect a new pope, right? And this goes back to the New Testament, right? How when uh, you know Judas is gone, the the eleven apostles meet and they elect Matthias to be one of their members, right? Um, so um, they elect a new pope, right, to be the successor. That's the primary job of the cardinal. Um, so it's not an aspect of the sacrament of orders. It's really just an honorific. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's certain responsibilities that typically go with it. Typically, if you're a cardinal, you're also involved in one of the one of the uh, congregations in in uh, in the Vatican. And by congregation, so I mean this, right? The the church is a it's a big organization. Right? Yeah. It's a worldwide organization. There's over 1.2 billion Catholics, um, and well, I think the largest landowner in the world. I yeah. believe that might be yeah. right. I believe that's right. Uh, um, so it's not a small deal. It's that's not a small. Yeah. It's not a small deal. And yeah. so um, you know, it's it's the and the 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 bishop of Rome. He's Peter's successor. Uh, he is the uh, sort of source of unity, right? That brings all the different Catholics of all the world and actually even all the different rites together. Because there's, he's the Pope of the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church. It's based in Rome. But the Catholic Church is, is bigger than the Roman Catholic Church because the, the descriptive Roman only really refers to the, to the kind of liturgy that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, a liturgy that is the prayer, how we say Mass, how we celebrate the other sacraments, it goes back to its origins is in the city of Rome. Mm-hmm. Where uh, there are other churches that are part of the Catholic Church um, where their, their liturgy um, doesn't come from Rome, it comes from a different source. So there are a number of different Byzantine Catholic churches. Ukrainian Catholic Church is the biggest one. Um, or here in the States it's called uh, the, uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, Greek Catholic Church. Um, there's the Melkite Church, which is also a Byzantine church. Why are they called Byzantine? Well, because the, the, their liturgy, the way they celebrate the sacrifice of Christ on the cross right, in, in Mass, um, goes back to the city of Byzantium, which is its older name, right? Today goes by the name Istanbul, right? It used to go by the name Constantinople. Right, right. Um, but it goes back to Byzantium. So, um, but the Melkite church was largely an Arab church in Syria, Jordan, Lebanon. Um, is, uh, is part of the Catholic church, but it's not Roman Catholic. It's yeah. Melkite Catholic. Yeah. Same thing with the Maronite church, which is in Lebanon, which my great-grandparents were or members of. Um, it's actually a Syriac church because its its origin actually is in Antioch, uh, where the liturgy comes from. So, um, so a, 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 a cardinal is not uh, a stage in the sacrament of orders. Right. right? It's just an honorific. 
Um, but usually if you're named a cardinal, you're involved in one of these congregations, which are essentially um, uh, bureaucracies, mm -hmm. really, agencies that help the pope administer the church, govern the church. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, So McCarrick was asked to, you know, politely asked to step down from uh, renounce his position in the College of Cardinals, so he can't vote for the Pope for the successor. Um, after this scandal arose, in which it was uh, revealed that he, or the allegation had been made and uh, investigation had been, had been made that it was credible, he had molested two teenage boys, all of a sudden a number of people started speaking up and saying, there's more to it than this. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it turns out, it was revealed uh, by numerous sources, he, he really lived a life of, of dissipation, that he was an active homosexual who would bring uh, seminarians and priests to a beach house that he owned. And he would share, they would share their, his bed with them. Mm -hmm. um, numerous people have, have come out and, and spoken about this now. And he did this for years. Um, the allegations also not always consensually either? Not, well, not always. Yeah. I mean, abuse of power is yeah. a phrase that's been used, right? Yeah. Because he was, you know, he was the, 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 the Archbishop of uh, um, uh, uh, Newark. Yeah. He's Archbishop of Newark, and before that he was a bishop of uh, another town in New Jersey. Um, and then later was Archbishop of, of Washington, D.C. Mm. Um, yeah, so as the, you're the overseer, you're the bishop, you have a lot of control over you know, someone who's enrolled in seminary, whether they feel like they have, they believe they have a vocation, a calling from God to serve, um, serve uh, the church in ministry. You know, are you going to be allowed to do this? Um, or if you're already a priest, you know, what's your assignment? Well, that's all up to ultimately to the bishop. Um, so, yeah, there was an abuse of power that was involved. But what it's also revealed is that were a number of also relationships between priests that were consensual. So they're not a crime. They wouldn't come under the, and they didn't involve a minor. So it doesn't come under the Dallas Charter. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it does involve a bishop, and it certainly is... Uh, regardless of what individually you may feel about the morality of, of, of uh, same-sex relations, right, of homosexuality, it's clearly against the, the teaching of the church, and it's clearly against the priest's vow of celibacy. Yeah. Um, so double women. Yeah. You could say. Yeah. Um, so this was revealed, and then sort of the the next step in this scandal uh, was that. Uh, Archbishop uh, Carlo Maria Vigano, mm -hmm. um, or I've heard of some people pronounce it uh, Vigano, but I don't speak Italian, so I don't know. Yeah. Vigano. But, uh, um, he's... Uh, took a couple of years of Latin, but it didn't pan out. Didn't, yeah. didn't take... <laughs> yeah. I, from what I know, it's Vigano, but I, yeah. Again, don't that, quote me on that. That should help you out in law school, though, a little, 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 uh, little Latin. Oh, those classes were in high school, and that was over a decade ago. Okay. So, yeah. A lot of drinking since then. <laughs> <laughs> Fewer brain cells. So. Yeah, right. Um, so he, that will it pot still. Mm -hmm. He, <laughs> he um, um, published um, a, a document that he refers to as his t a testimony. Mm -hmm. testimony. And in it, he does say, I'd be willing to swear this on oath to mm -hmm. God mm -hmm. as my witness. Um, where he, you know, just a little background on, on who Archbishop Vigano was. Um, he was involved, in, he was an archbishop involved in the bureaucracy of Rome, actually in, in running the Vatican City State. So it is a, again, it is a, it's not just uh, 
the church as a spiritual body, but it also has this sort of political, real-world dimension to it. Um, he was involved in that and actually working to clean up. There's another scandal involving the Vatican Bank uh, and its finances. He was removed from that position and was assigned to become what's called the nuncio to mm -hmm. the United States. Right. Nuncio is, is it's essentially the ambassador yeah, like from Vatican yeah, City yeah, State, right. right? So there are nuncios uh, and they're all around the world. Um, and, and it's like an ambassador. It is an ambassador because he is the person who relates to uh, the host nation state where he is. Um, but it's more than that because he also helps the local bishops in terms of, of uh, various issues in, in governing the local church. Uh, and most importantly, like he, is, he serves as sort of a funnel for um, when a new bishop needs to be appointed. Okay, so there are names that are put forward. The, the nuncio kind of ser serves as a sort of funnel for that as those recommendations go over to Rome and then the, the Pope. In the Roman church, the Pope appoints bishops. In the other churches, right, like in the Maronite church, in the Melkite church, in the mm -hmm. Ukrainian Catholic church, their own synods of bishops select their successors and then the Pope just says, okay, thumbs up. Um, but they, he doesn't appoint them, whereas in the Roman church, the Pope does, because yeah. the Pope is the head of the Roman church as well as the head of the, the church universal. Um, so he was the nuncio here in Washington, D.C., and um, which is where McCarrick was the archbishop. And um, although he, I think, became a nuncio after McCarrick had stepped down, and uh, Donald Worrell is the current uh, Cardinal Archbishop of Washington D.C. I think he was uh, he was the bishop when when um, Vigano became the nuncio. Having said that, though, he knew about uh, McCarrick's activities. He'd learned this from uh, his predecessor. This is set forth in the in this uh, testimony, this document that he issued, uh, and it's actually quite detailed. Um, so it. it we both read, yeah. You read both, yeah, yeah, yeah. eleven pages. I mean, yeah. I, I would say this: I, I, it, it goes off on some tangents, and mm -hmm. people have criticized it for this, and I think rightly so that he sort of uh, picks some fights, like he criticizes the Jesuits a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, not that they aren't worthy of criticism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I, w I would say yeah. I agree with that, but it, it just it distracts from his main point. Mm -hmm. His main point was that there were senior officials in here and in Rome who knew about this, who knew about McCarrick, knew about him, and notwithstanding that fact, he rose through the ranks, right? From priest <clears throat> to bishop to archbishop to cardinal. Mm -hmm. uh, and no one did anything about it. And not only does he name names of people here, he names names of people in Rome, mm -hmm. including, it goes all the way up to Francis. He right. cites a specific meeting, June 23rd, 2013. I had a meeting with the Pope. Pope asked me, what do you think of McCarrick? And he said, Holy Father, he has led to the corruption of numerous seminarians and priests through his sexual misconduct. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a file this thick on him yeah. uh, in the congregation of bishops. For everybody listening, it, his fingers are about two inches apart. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Either that conversation took place or it didn't. Uh, if it didn't take place, well, it, I think it can confirm whether the conversation took place or not. If that was the content of the conversation, he shared that with the Pope. Um, 
that's problematic mm -hmm. because of what happened to McCarrick thereafter. McCarrick had been, you know, he'd been a retired uh, archbishop. He had really kind of a lower profile. Mm -hmm. And what the letter said, what, what Vigano's, uh, testimony, or Vigano's testimony says, is that that was due to the fact that um, Francis' predecessor, um, Pope Benedict XVI, had imposed certain restrictions on him, yeah. certain penalties on him, mm -hmm. um, that he had become aware of, again, his sinful behavior, and he had, he had told him to now live a life of, of penance. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but what happened um, after Francis became Pope is that McCarrick actually has a very high-profile position, right. and he has the Pope's ear. Uh, in, in fact, in the testimony, he says that uh, Vigano says that um, McCarrick was responsible for the promotion of, of two cardinals here in the United States. Um, Tobin, who is the um, Archbishop of, of Newark now, uh, and uh, our own the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, uh, Blaise Supich. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I mean, but it, it paints the question, or paints the picture of him being the sort of kingmaker mm -hmm. uh, for these ecclesiastical figures. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't. He, he alleges this conversation, and if it took place, you know, it, it, there's no way that Francis, Pope Francis, comes out of this looking good. I mean, he can look worse or better, but he's not going to look good. Right. Um, because if he did have that, you can see he had this conversation with him. I mean, if he, if the conversation didn't take place, then Vigano um, is guilty of the sort of lowest form of slander and should be Excellent. condemned. Would, would that call for excommunication? Um, you know, it I don't might. Really know the rules on. I, I mean, I don't know exactly yeah. rule on that either. I, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. I think it would just it would be obviously be a sin. I mean, it's yeah. a sin to slander anybody. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if about uh, excommunication. I'm not sure, and I'm not a canonist, mm -hmm. um, not a canon lawyer. Um, but if it did take place, then I think most charitably what happened was, uh, and again, this is a matter of sort of speculation, but most charitably what happened was that um, Francis consulted with some other bishops around him, and they said, and it could be the very people that uh, Vigano identifies in his testimony, uh, talks to these other bishops around him. Now that, that's McCarrick's good. He's 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 all right. Uh, mm -hmm. This is just Vigano's wrapped up in the culture wars uh, in the United States, and this is that's not who he is. He's a good guy, um, and he took that advice uh, to heart and didn't pursue the matter further. Again, I think that's the most charitable uh, yeah, way sure. of viewing this. Right. I mean, the worst is he. He ignored what he said. He didn't pursue it at all, and no one else said anything contrary to what Vagano said. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. he proceeded to promote him and right. and call upon him as an advisor, uh -huh. um, which, well, there's just no, that's just not a good position to be in, right? That he would knowingly promote and seek the advice of a known uh, child molester and someone who had been an active homosexual. Um, let's. Just, I just want to gear this back to Francis's actions post-revelation of all these details, because from an outsider, it looks like there's just this deep unwillingness of the Catholic Church to cut out its diseased parts, and that there, and I'm hearing from some commentators that there's no sufficient maya culpa on Francis's part besides stepping down as pope, and I, 
What do you make of all that? There, and there's been no no, there's been no mea culpa at all. In fact, so I, you'd referred to I think before the trip to Ireland. So uh, Vigano's letter or testimony came out. I think that the morning that he left Rome to go to Ireland for a, a two or three day pastoral trip to Ireland, um, and he was asked on the plane on the way en route to Ireland um, what he had any response to it, and he said, "I won't address it at all." I'm not going to say anything more on it. I, uh, you can read the letter, and I leave it to you, journalists, to make it a, 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 of it what you will. Right. Some journalists have tried to do that, actually. Uh, there have been, I think, journalists from the New York Times went to the nunciature in D.C., which is the nuncio's house, the ambassador's, the embassy, essentially, yeah. and sought the documents because Vigano says in his testimony that these documents exist at the nunciature and in Rome. And so you should seek those documents out. Uh, they haven't had it. They, these uh, reporters didn't have any success in getting those documents. Right. Stunning. Right. Yeah, no, well, yeah. right. I, <clears throat> and it just seems this is all ringing a bell now. And I remember saying to Nick, and I'd put this to you, that Francis, I feel like, almost knew that he had so much goodwill built up with the media, uh, given how he's been very progressive on a lot of issues and a lot of these larger media outlets love that, you know, especially when it comes to homosexuality, climate change, uh, during his tenure as Pope, that he almost said, like, make make of it what you will, knowing that if they spin the story, it's not going to be to Francis's disadvantage. So he almost is better off just letting the media do with it what they will rather than going on record. I know? think that that's true, and yeah. actually that points to, you might say, um, Look, when there's a scandal, it's usually not just one person looks bad, lots of people look bad. Obviously, right. the church looks hideously ugly mm -hmm. uh, yeah. because of the scandal. But they're not the only ones. The media looks bad, too. Mm -hmm. Because apparently it was an open secret for many years that McCarrick carried on like this. And they didn't, they didn't go after him. The media did not go after him the way they went after Cardinal Law. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not defending Cardinal Law. Right. I, I think, actually, the Globe did us a great service, again, in revealing uh, what they did in 2002. Mm -hmm. um, but they, they left. They didn't go after McCarrick. And the thought is, is because, well, they saw him as um, a friend. He right. supported the same sort of liberal agenda exactly. uh, that they see Francis as, uh, as supporting. And I think that there's actually been an attempt to uh, discredit Vignola because he leans more conservative on some issues, of too. Of course. I mean, everybody wants to fit this over this easy framework of politics. And I think it goes much deeper than that, obviously. There's there's a lot more at work. But I the thing is, that I, I think it's a despicable strategy for the Pope to remain silent. But he might not have been wrong, you know, about that that was how he comes out looking best about this. Yeah, we'll know? see. I don't know. He mean, right. he, he, that story's he, not written, I guess. Yeah, so, he, uh, uh, there were several people that were defending his silence by saying, I mean, actually, I think he even described it as the silence of, of Christ before Pontius Pilate. I mean, come on. Right. Uh, uh, I mean, that doesn't sit, sit at all. At all. <laughs> and uh, even uh, I read the, the this morning, he gave a homily, uh, it was either earlier today or yesterday, um, where he refer to, uh, refers to, it's the devil. It's the devil who's accusing bishops and is like suggesting that they're innocent. And they're not. I mean, Cardinal World is not innocent. I mean, I do think he will resign. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think if that's one thing that will come out of this. What happens to uh, other hierarchs, you know, Tobin, Supic, uh, others, I, I don't know. Uh, right. I'm not saying that well, I think in some instances resignation is a good thing. I think you, you had referred to this before, I, that um, the church needs to go through a period of, of purification. 
right. because there is a, a deep corruption, a rot that goes very, very deep. Right. So I think you use you said amputation. I uh, actually, cut out the disease. You know? I, I've actually used the same uh, image with uh, people I've talked to. Not only that, amputation. Right. Right. Followed by round after round of severe chemotherapy. Maybe a shot of penicillin too. Right. <laughs> um, and whiskey. I'll, just to make sure. <laughs> just to bring uh, it back. I want to ask you about the church as an institution, and I'll use. Uh, an analogy I think I used with Nick is that like I am like a political conservative you know I of the William F. Buckley National Review type. Who's a Catholic? Yeah good God-fearing Catholic. Um, not a fan of Gore Vidal. And I see so like in the rise of Trump but even a little bit preceding Trump has made me like kind of realize that perhaps the Republican Party is not the best vessel for conservative values or uh, you know, sticking to any kind of first principles or ideologies. And it's made me not want to call myself a Republican anymore. Mm. And I guess fitting this onto the framework of the church is like the, the Catholic Church does not have a monopoly on your faith or your belief in God or your belief in Jesus as the Savior and all, and all these things that you believe. At what point do you start to question whether the Catholic Church is the right vehicle to promulgate the beliefs that you hold so dear, you know, that... Well, where do I get those beliefs from? I didn't invent them. Right. I received them. Well, where did, you know, where, who, from whom did I receive them? Well, my parents, right, my teachers. I mean, I, until I went to Harvard, I was completely a product of Catholic education from kindergarten through college, right? right. I went to Notre Dame, as you said. Mm -hmm. But I went to, you know, parochial school, went to an all-boys Catholic high school. Well, it was from my teachers, from my family. Um, where did they get it from? Well, from their family. I mean, the faith is something that's passed on, but it comes from the church. It right. comes from the church, properly understood, right? The church is not just the hierarchy. It's yeah. not. It's not the pope and bishops and cardinals. It's not. It's, it's all of us, and in fact, that's what the... the the word church, which is an Anglo-Saxon word, right? But it comes from the Latin and the Greek, ecclesia, which in Greek means the coming together. Mm -hmm. The coming together, right? Mm -hmm. And that actually has a, has a biblical meaning, too. I mean, if, you, if you look in the Bible, right, whenever it describes you know, what happened, what's in Genesis, there's a union. Right? I mean, the nuptial union of our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? But it's a union. What happens? Well, division. Division through sin. And it happens throughout the story of the Bible, right? That the, the, tw the 12 tribes of Israel are scattered. What happens at the crucifixion, right? The 12 apostles are scattered, right? Uh, it's the, the devil is the divider, mm. right? God brings us together, right? So we're meant to be together. That's what communion is being together because you can't you love other people I mean, that's really ultimately that's where your salvation lies in right. uh, the but, god of love and sacrifice but what happens when the fox gets in the hen house you know well you kill the fox okay yeah you kill the fox but that doesn't it doesn't undermine uh it doesn't undermine the nature of the church it right. just means the church has lived out its true calling in a very imperfect way sure um but I mean, I think so. The analogy to uh, to a you know, civil or institutional political party uh, is I mean, there's an analogy there, and I can understand what you're saying. Like, right. oh, do I really want to be affiliated with this, okay, yeah. with this this group anymore? Well, I I don't want to be associate myself with McCarrick. 
even though, I mean, you have to say, even even though as, as horrendous as his conduct is, he's still a human being, still baptized as a child of God. God calls him to conversion and salvation as well. Um, so that's why even the analogy of amputation, I mean, you're talking about the body of Christ, that's the church. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you're talking about people. Uh, and the church is a church of sinners, sometimes gross sinners, but sinners. So um, the analogy of amputation is maybe uh, as, as powerful as it is, is maybe a little misplaced mm-hmm. because we're, we're all called to conversion. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to think of or associate with McCarrick as like pointing to, well, what do you think is best about the church? And say, that's it. Yeah. No, any more than a lot of people when it comes to uh, conservatives, I won't say Republicans, but conservatives, they want to point to Trump. He's not a principled conservative. Yeah, you'll, he may you be will doing never some, find me in the position of defending Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, well, he may, he may be doing... principled anything. <laughs> he may be doing some conservative things. Well, yeah, right, and right. enacting some conservative policies that you'd like. But uh, yeah, a, a principle is not a, a word that comes to mind yeah. readily when you're, when you're talking about the president. Yeah. Uh, they're, they are a little separate, though. There's, uh, I guess one has to do, everybody knows politics is dirty. Yeah. He just happens to be, have an extra stench, <laughs> you know? Like, it, it's, uh... Or, or we'll say this. I don't know about extra stench, actually, but a more conspicuous one. <laughs> I saw a headline that said, like, more Democrats favor Jeff Sessions staying on as Attorney General. Uh-huh. And it just blew my mind that people are so anti-Trump that they have now found a that common the, cause yeah, with the, Jeff well, Sessions. Yeah, the liberal <laughs> voters have now see Jeff Sessions as a part. I grew up around Jeff Sessions. This is like, yeah, this is I, I don't know what. Yeah, he is not your ally. I promise. <laughs> but uh, um, I don't know. I, what, what's the old uh, the Chinese proverb? Right, the enemy of my enemy is my, my friend. friend. Yeah. yeah. I guess, but uh, is he really the enemy? No, I don't. No way so. to put together a coalition. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I did. I, I did like the you. You mentioned that you know, we're all sinners. I, I yeah. that reminded me. I when I was younger, I was driving past a church in who knows one of them in the middle of nowhere in the south. Um, that had a sign in the front that said, and it's always stuck with me. Said. Um, uh, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Yeah. And, I was, and I just remember, you know, no one goes there because they're perfect. No, it, don't. If you were, you wouldn't go there. You wouldn't need to go there. You right. wouldn't have, you know, that's a, it's a, it's because, you know, we're, fa- we're fallible, so I guess, we're infallible. So I guess that's kind of what ties it back to what you were saying about McCarrick. But that's, I don't, I'm not so sure cutting out wouldn't be the better option there because he's... Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. cut out in the sense of, like, he has no role in yeah. the church. But, like... Uh, Char- yeah. But, I um, mean, could he, could he still, like, receive communion? Well, it goes to confession? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, that's what it means to be excommunicated. So you, yeah. you no longer have available the, uh, the grace available to you through the sacraments. Go um, but I mean, the question arises: sort of what happens from here? And mm-hmm. I agree with you that the response so far from uh, some Francis has been deeply disappointing. Um, so um, I, I do know that the Cardinal Donardo, the Archbishop of Houston, is I think he's seeing uh, the Pope uh, tomorrow or sometime this week. Um, so he is the current head of the USCCB, the Conference of Catholic Bishops in the United States. 
and um, he came out with a statement which received you know around uh, uh, all around uh, su support uh, for a, a thoroughgoing investigation of of the McCarrick scandal. I wonder if that will actually take place mm. because um, there will be a number of people in Rome who will be opposed to that because the scandal is not simply a scandal in the United States. It reaches, right. reaches back over yeah, there. Right, right. And there are a number of people whose, whose careers and reputations could be ruined, justifiably so, yeah. I suspect, right. but ruined. Um, and so I wonder. I mean, the, 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 the claim has been made, well, we need to have you know, a thorough investigation, an apostolic visitor, okay, a, a bishop appointed, a committee appointed to do an investigation. Uh, many people here have said that's there needs to be lay involvement. I totally agree with that, meaning you know, people who know how to do an investigation. Attorneys, mm -hmm. right? Sure. You don't get a former U.S. attorney or a bunch of them. Right. Um, people involved in law enforcement um, who could who could do this. Right. Because um, those were the people that prosecuted the cases that you mentioned at the at the outset. The the people that made real difference in the Maryland and uh, Boston and, and stuff like that. Los the, Angeles. Yeah, were the outside yeah. prosecutors. Well, right? they weren't even pro even they weren't even prosecutors there. Right. They were private attorneys. Right. Representing clients who were you know individuals who had been abused and mm -hmm. were suing the church for, for damages. I mean, uh, the Archdiocese of Los Angeles paid out uh, over $600 million in damages. I mean, think about that. The church has paid out oh, well over a billion dollars as a whole mm. in the various dioceses. Um, and I would say that I forgot we kind of missed this, I'm sorry, I missed this in the timeline, that right after the McCarrick scandal but before the Vagano uh, testimony came out, the uh, grand jury in Pennsylvania issued this report. It's like right. a fourteen hundred page report, yeah. where it goes over the history of sex abuse yeah. in uh, I think four or five six. of the dioceses. Yeah, six dioceses. Six dioceses, not Philadelphia, but all the other ones yeah. in the state of Pennsylvania, and it's just horrific. It's just horrific. Right. Having said that, I don't think it's actually so much new news. I mean, this was really what the Dallas Charter was meant to address, right. and what. Um, I think the shock was just the the uh, scale some of the details on some of the yeah. details of it. Yeah, oh, right. like you know, uh, uh, the priest taking naked pictures of a boy in in the, taking a cruciform, right. yeah, right. uh, appearing as Jesus yeah, on the right. cross, and then washing their mouth out with holy water yeah, after right. they uh, yeah. have oral sex with them. I just and just have absolutely the, horrible. the secret like symbols with yeah. the, the gold like, cross. I mean, right. talk about perverting. Yeah. Oh, like, it just yeah. utterly perverse. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't just that. I think it was also the the size of it. There was. Over a thousand kids, over three hundred priests. Yeah, although it was yeah. over a number of decades. Yeah, so, from and, and back actually, to the forties. Actually, I have I seen think this. One kid over a matter of decades is too many. No, but of course. Yeah. You know, but like, no, of course. Right. Yeah. But, right. But when you're looking to see, are you making progress? And actually, so after after Dallas in two thousand two, the bishops commissioned a report that was done by the John Jay College of Law in New York, mm -hmm. uh, where they looked back at all these his, all this history of, of of sex abuse. So it covered from. Um, the 1920s or 30s, all the way up to 2010. And what it showed was that in terms of like the abusers, the sort of cohorts of abusers, so like priests that were ordained, say, you know, from 1950 to 1955, or, you know, 1975 to 1980, cohorts of priests, um, it was mostly priests in the 50s and 60s that did this, uh, 50s, 60s, and then 70s. And then after, in the 80s, it starts to drop off. 
80s, 90s, it drops off. So, and actually, there was some, the, the bishops actually, the individual bishops did address this problem before Boston, before 2002. They just didn't do it in a thorough way, and they mm -hmm. did it a very haphazard way, and it wasn't comprehensive throughout the, all the dioceses. Um, but what the grand jury report that just came out from Pennsylvania, so mm -hmm. it was 2018, what it shows, it shows the same trend. So it confirms what the John Jay College study showed that there was this increase up through the 50s and 60s, uh, 70s, and then it dropped off. Mm -hmm. So that the measures the church has been put in effect are being effective. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, a, I mean, that's where you're talking about abuse of, of young people. Right. Uh, children, actually children, prepubescent kids mm -hmm. is a very small percentage. It's like 10 or 12 percent. Yeah. Most of it is post-pubescent kids, and the vast majority of that are male. Mm -hmm. uh, Eighty-one percent is what the uh, John Jay uh, study showed. Yeah. So it shows there's a, a problem of homosexuality in the priesthood. Really, yeah. that's what it comes down to, and uh, that's a problem that none of the bishops want to address. Unfortunately, not to say and I don't want to malign anyone. There are many. Um, Gay priests are very faithful Orthodox priests, right? That lead their people, and they, uh, their parishioners in the gospel. Um, but there's some that live, uh, you know, whose lives are quite contrary to the gospel. Mm. You, you, you say it, it was a. Uh, I want to just push back a little bit on the uh, the point of uh, the post-pubescent. There, I want to be careful not to equate. Homosexuality with child molestation. No, no, no. That's yeah. right. That's right. So, were, are you saying they were all adults, or they were all like twelve well, and older, or thirteen, however? That's right. Right. So, uh, twelve and older. Okay. Eight, you know, eighty percent, or, or it's more than that. I think ninety percent of them were post-pubescent, uh -huh. um, and of that, eighty percent were male. Over eighty percent male, and so yeah, this, the claim is made, and yeah. actually, even Cardinal Super just claimed this. The problem, he said outright, that the problem is not homosexuality. The problem is not sex. The problem is clericalism. Yeah, um, I agree. Clericalism is part of the problem, but I think you. What just, exactly does that mean? Clericalism would be the idea that uh, of showing deference to someone just because they're ordained, just oh, because they're okay, a priest. Okay, okay. Oh, you know better, Father. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right, well, if right. you think we ought to spend this money in the parish budget on on you know on this, you know you know better. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's it's a matter of sort of deference and respect, and mm -hmm. so you know because you're in a position of uh, of authority, that authority can be you it can be abused, right? You can take that right, right, right. deference for granted. So I mean, I agree that's a problem. That is a problem, um, but I mean, what does the clericalism further? What what malady does it further? And here, it's it's a it's it's um, sexual misconduct is right. what it furthers, right? right? Um, so, um, but when the Cardinal the, Supich is, yeah, aren't the sorry, aren't the majority of the victims? Uh, uh, and I'm, I may be completely misrepresenting, and if I am, please correct me. The, no, no, weren't they younger than sixteen though? I don't know if that's the I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah. there, but the 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 I think most people would say what this yeah. shows yeah. is you have um, a group of homosexual priests okay. who are um, taking advantage uh, who like young partners right? yeah but how, right? yeah and and using and the collar to of course yeah. 
of course. Yeah. Um, now, having said that, like that, that there are the, the the John Jay College study says of those priests who engaged in misconduct, uh -huh. who identify as heterosexual, and those that identify as homosexual, uh, the the chances that they engaged in misconduct. It, their, their homosexuality was not a factor. Okay. They didn't make you more likely or not. That's true. Uh -huh. um, and there are other studies that show that in other instances outside the church. That's okay. true. But I think what a lot of people, when they when you know they hear someone say, the problem is not homosexuality in the priesthood, again, with the caveat that there are plenty of faithful gay priests, right? Just so we're clear on that. Mm -hmm. But I think what the problem a lot of people hear when they hear a claim like that, homosexuality is not the problem, the study, um, the study, it separates um, homosexual activity from homosexual identity, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it says of of all the sort of categories of how people identify, uh, what makes them more likely to engage in in this misconduct, it's that they they have a confused identity, mm -hmm. so they don't identify as as straight or gay, okay. Um, Okay. There, the I'm glad I pushed back. That's that's an important part. Yeah. It, there, the incidence is higher. Yeah. But because it draws this distinction, it says, well, um, uh, between identifying one way and the act, identifying as as gay and uh, uh, gay sex, mm -hmm. um, I think mo what most people would say is like, well, the guy may have the priest may have said he's confused, but he's actually gay mm -hmm. he, because he engaged in sex with men. Yeah. men. Um, the analogy they draw is to, is to uh, a prison, uh -huh. where you have, you know... It's a, it's a matter of access. A matter yeah. of access. Right. And I, you know, I, I just don't think that that accounts for it all. Mm. just don't. I don't think that accounts for it all. Um, that, you know, oh, you have altar boys. Well, you have altar girls as well. Mm. Um, and they're... Girls and boys are both in parochial school. I, I don't think it was simply a matter of access. I think it was also a matter of, of choice. Mm -hmm. And again, not to malign the, sure. the, the faithful gay priests who were out there, um, but yeah, there are these predators out there who were, who were gay who also took advantage of, of uh, young people they had access to. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm being mindful of your time and Richard's time, and I think I want to end on something a little bit with a little bit more levity okay because i had told you that i i wanted to ask you questions good pivot about faith and um what and as somebody who's not especially religious nor as i told you in the email and i think in the pre-show uh i'm not a militant atheist either mm -hmm. i'm sort of a an active observer of religion and i try to pr approach it in a very like intellectual kind of way okay um, what does faith mean to you? What are the parameters of your faith? Um, have you ever questioned your faith? And then, if yes, or even if not, how do you? What do you do to maintain that and keep that alive? Because it is kind of like a relationship all of its own, isn't it? Um, well, ultimately, faith is a relationship, right? right? I mean, it's about a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, faith. I mean, um, I, I would say this: um, it, it's. My understanding of faith, it, maybe you explain it, is to say what it's not. Yeah, sure. Right? Let's do that. What it's not, it's not simply um, pure credulity. I believe just because someone says, mm -hmm. right? Actually, faith is a, uh, an, 
a rational act. It's an act of the intellect, um, yeah, whereby you yeah. affirm something to be true. Mm -hmm. You affirm it to be true, but then it's also relationship. So faith is also is trust. I trust in God, and I love God. I'm devoted to God. It has those three aspects to it. So it's not simply propositional. Is this true? Is this false? That's part of it, right? Um, do you believe God exists? Um, do you believe Jesus is God incarnate? Um, but um, putting your trust in God and showing your devotion to God by how you live your life. Mm -hmm. All of that is faith. Uh, so you're obviously a very learned man, and you've worked in a pretty deliberate profession as a law professor and uh, as a writer. Um, so wh how do you see faith in the context of the holy books? Like, um, and you mentioned it's it's not just about credulity. So, I mean, obviously there are uh, stories in the Bible, both New and Old Testament, that make some wonder whether or not they're factual uh, accounts of what actually happened or whether they have more of these metaphorical truths built into them. So, I mean, how does faith play into that? Right. So, um, I mean, that uh, any Christian, um, regardless of whether Catholic or, or Orthodox or whatever their denomination, um, I, th I think I could say this, um, believe that the Bible is inspired, is inspired by God. Um, but that's not to say that every book of the Bible is, is a book of history. Right. Um, that there are different sort of forms, uh, literary forms that are employed. I mean, you read the Psalms. The Psalms are poetry. Mm -hmm. Some of the greatest poetry ever written. Uh, and written to be sung, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so you have some books that are more historical in right. nature and others that are not, right? I mean, there are probably some Christians that regard right the story of creation, the book of Genesis, as historical. I don't, and, and, and I do believe it's inspired. I do believe that the truths it conveys through this language uh, are true, right? Mm -hmm. That um, God created the universe, right? And men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. Um, I, I think I'm gonna. And I'm, that we're, oh, we're, go ahead. We're, well, that we're we're fallen, right? Every one of us knows. Every person knows. The world is not how it should be, mm -hmm. and every person knows. They look in the mirror. I'm not the person I should be. I'm, I'm called to be something else. Uh, well, that's that's an, that's an echo. That's a reminder. Uh, the story of, of the fall. That's what the fall is about, right? We're not who we should be. We're not where we should be. I would actually argue that 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 is the uh, that one facet of faith. Is built most into American DNA. There, which one? The what he just said. The the um, we're not where we should be. We're not where we could be. America has always seemed to be a. You no, know, we have terrible disagreements. We've had the Civil War. We've had uh, the current political climate, World War Two. Everything, everything we've done, always, 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 we've said we can do better. We, and, we, and we should do that, better. I think, I think that's exactly a, yeah. right. I think right. that's a really uh, keen observation. Mm -hmm. I think right. that the defining virtue of America is hope. Yeah. Right. Um, we're always looking, you know, we're always looking out past the horizon, mm -hmm. right? Um, if, if my situation here is not good, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna move to the, to America, right? We're a nation of immigrants, right. right? And okay, my situation here on the coast is not good. I'm moving west. Right. Um, there's always something better that we can build. Now the problem with that is that hope is um, 
it's really more in a way you could say kind of optimism and not so much hope, right? Yeah. That I can make my material circumstances better rather than I have a reason for living. Yeah. Uh, which is hope. I mean, hope is a theological virtue. But I, I say that's right. I think we yeah. can always do better. I mean, the yeah. whole premise of the United States is that the only real unifying identity is this kind of creedal thing about it. You know, the I mean, we have the American dream. What other, what other country can really say that? I mean, there's no... Albanian dream. I mean, there's no, not to pick on Albania, but uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it is, we are a country of creeds, you know, and we, we are, we are, well, we're a country of creeds mm -hmm. because we are a pluralistic society in terms of our religious belief, including, you know, nuns, right, right. Uh, which is a, a growing body. But we're also, we have a creed. There is mm -hmm. an American creed, right, right that we believe in self-rule. We believe mm -hmm. in freedom. Right. We believe in uh, equality, if not material equality, equality of opportunity, right, the chance to make your life of what you will. I mean, this kind of, in a weird way, is getting back to the jurisprudential stuff that we were talking about. It the, does. Um, and I'm, I think I'm going to repeat myself just in case not all our listeners listen to all three of our episodes on the Catholic Church. But I was talking about this with Nick, uh, which I thought was a really interesting discussion that we just basically scraped the surface of about how the stories in the Bible... Uh, while maybe not literal, are still true. You know, with the, where they kind of are... They codify this ancestral knowledge that perhaps we were only best, the best way that we had to communicate it was through these stories uh, before we could explain them on a granular level. Like, I think, again, this relates back to the fact that we want to throw out the baby with the bathwater nowadays because we have science and we can explain a lot of phenomena through science. And we look back on these biblical stories and we say, well, those clearly could never have happened. That's not true. It's like, no, wait, the science in the the truth and the story are actually one and the same, you know. Uh, and the example I used last time was how in Judaism they tell you not to eat pork, and that was probably because hogs are dirty animals and they'd get you sick and you'd get E. coli before we knew, before we ever had a microscope and we knew what a cell was. We knew that before it was. Before we knew what E. coli was. Right. Yeah. So they have these truths embodied in them where if you live by them, you are going to be better situated than if you did not live by them. And in that sense, they are true, right? Um, of course, I, the claims of the Bible go beyond that. I mean, that is, that's part of the, the, the old Jewish law, right, of uh, keeping kosher and mm -hmm. the old Jewish law is still, still, uh, the, the still followed, still followed right? Um, but, yeah. I mean, I mean, what about, um, yeah, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not murder, mm -hmm. right? you shall not commit adultery. I mean, those yeah. actually also communicate truths. Exactly, yeah, yeah, right. Truth. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, know I was going to say I lost my train of thought. Well, I did want to tie back, as, a, uh, as we'd said about the Judeo-Christian values in America and all that, there was one thing that I... Uh, um, and it's mainly this. This was recorded on September twelfth, so I did want to bring back that another similarity between American culture as a whole and religion is when tragedy strikes, how we react. Mm. Uh, you can have people who have been feuding for twenty years, right, and say one of them has a child die or something like that. Right. What with I'm Jewish, so with my community, with Catholicism, which I think are very similar. They are. Commun communally, well, yeah. But um, when you, um, there's a instant lowering of the guard. There's an instant, uh, 
we can be mad at each, at each other later. Right. Like I'm I'm gonna come. I'm gonna give you a hug. I'm gonna tell you I'm sorry because you know what, we weren't always angry. Right. What ha- seventeen years ago in a day was one of, is one of the biggest tragedies in our country's history, right. and then seventeen years ago to the day, I ha- I don't know. How do we get to this? How, point? How do, well, how do we get back to <laughs> how do we that? Get back there. Back no, to right. September twelfth, where it was a a brief moment in our history where everyone or, was just. Or even uh, even, yeah. even September eleventh, if I remember correctly, and all members of Congress went out on the steps of the Capitol, saying "God I mean, bless America." God bless yeah. America. There really is yeah. no secular way to grieve. I mean, if, I think the as much as we understand about human history will tell us that, like, even the most primitive people didn't have a secular way to grieve. I mean, like. And that's been one of the biggest failings of the atheist movement. Well, and I would say, actually, to go back to the point you were talking about before, I, there's no such thing as a person who's not religious. Everyone's right. religious. Everyone has a faith. They have something, Just right, that they believe. An atheist act. Um, including including yeah. atheists. They, they believe in something. They affirm something to be true when they can't actually prove it. Prove it in the way that you, you know, set it on the table before you and I'd see it. Like, I can prove this is a cup. Right. Or a vessel that holds liquid. You can't do that. Um, everyone has that sort of faith, and it actually, and tying into also what you said before, the supposed opposition between science and, and faith, or particularly science and, and Christianity, is just all hogwash. Right. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't have the scientific method grew out of uh, Christian culture. Right. I mean, actually going back to the whole idea of being able to separate that that nature, that creation has an autonomy from the Creator. Mm-hmm. Um, is a is a Judeo Christian mm-hmm. notion. Um, I mean, the pagans didn't believe that that the natural world was all infused with deity, mm-hmm. uh, the nymphs in this spring or that tree. Right. Um, it, it's only when you think of creation as having its own sort of autonomy, created by God, dependent upon God, um, but it, uh, has its own autonomy, that you're able to think about it and understand it and see it as intelligible. Um, that's what's resulted in the, the marvels of science that we have uh, today. But the whole idea, I mean, you can look at all these major figures in the history of science, too, who are also Christian, or many of them Catholic, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, Nicholas Copernicus was a priest, right? And Gregor Mendel, uh, who's the father of modern genetics. Mm-hmm. And um, George, uh, uh, what is it, Lamontre. Uh, who's the, I'm mispronouncing his name, but he's the priest who came up with the Big Bang Theory, mm-hmm. an astronomer. Um, that's just that's just ridiculous. Well, I mean, I know a Catholic priest came up with the Big Bang Theory, which is fascinating. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, but even the idea of narrative uh, and, like, looking at cause and effect, you have to have some sort of basis for that, like your ability to interact with the world and see the world as separate from yourself, right, which I think is fundamentally a very revelatory idea like Christian we'll say Judeo-Christian and then also like the, like I was saying like you cannot just look at a set of facts and derive a narrative from it I mean this is the David Hume problem kind mm-hmm. of like how do you get from is to ought and I think that for that I don't necessarily I haven't thought it through to the point where I can understand how a completely secular person can get those things, values, from facts and narrative from just a chain of events and well, they, they cause and effect. They can't, uh, except if they adopt uh, a, um, a more traditional um, metaphysics, 
mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's the whole idea of the scientific method. It, 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 uh, if you go back to Aristotle, you got the four causes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, efficient material, um, 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 formal and final. And, you know, the modern scientific method just jettisons two of those. Mm-hmm. And so it automatically uh, uh, makes it impossible for you to even conceive of such a thing as God. But it also makes you impossible to conceive of something as freedom. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not, a, that's not a real notion under a, 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 a materialist metaphysic. Right? Yeah. All there is is just stuff, is matter right. and energy. Right. You can't really talk about I freedom mean, there. A lot of people try to put, like, qualia in the camp of facts and they kind of just sneak that in through the the back door like the idea of like pain pleasure and all these things like they just take them as a point of fact when really it's not it's a pattern of behavior that means something more right and yeah and I, mean, it, I mean i think going back to what you're saying like um a, 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 an atheist has a really hard time accounting for human rights mm-hmm. where do those come from mm-hmm. right and i can tell you there's just sort of three sources Three poss- there's three options on the table, and there are only three. You can say that this is it's the truth, and that's the Judeo-Christian tradition, right? That every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. They have a dignity inherent to them that should be respected. Yeah. There's a matter of convention. Okay, we're not all equal, but we're going to agree we're all equal, right? Because that's just the, that's the easiest way to get along. Right. Sometimes we may not get along, and then we resort to the third, which is coercion, violence, power. Um, you, you're going to act this way because I'm telling you you're going to act this way. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the three bases for, for law, not just human rights as a whole, but uh, or human rights in particular, the law as a whole. Uh, you should have learned this in jurisprudence. Uh, yeah, um, no, I, 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 think I, I think I did learn this in jurisprudence, but I mean, right, it, it's, it's hard for... Uh, the atheist, the atheist to account for um, morality because they can point to like you know here's the greatest good something like heaven let's just say and here's the worst evil something like hell and then every movement towards it is again behavior and from that behavior you get an emergent ethic but like the ethic isn't obvious and I feel like well how do you even define good right I mean, where does that come from right. I mean, it's it's not a fact that's sort of laid upon the table, right? right. Some people like this, and other people like that. I mean, that's Hume, right? Right. The standard of taste. And pain and pleasure becomes kind of confusing when, like, okay, we can say pain is putting your hand on a hot stove. I like but, that. But, 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 but what happens when putting your hand on the hot stove happens to save your child's life? You well, know. Right. So again, uh, the the atheist. That's, that was my. That's my argument for there's. No such thing as an absolute truth. Right, right. There are absolute right and absolute wrong. There are always going to be gray areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but there, if there's no absolute truth, no transcendent truth, then all we're uh, if those are the three options: uh, power, convention, agreement, yeah. or truth. If there's no truth, you're going to devolve into one of those. Let me rephrase. And all that's yeah. that's that's a place you actually don't want to be. Let me rephrase. I didn't mean absolute. I meant universal. So sure. Yeah. So that was wrong turn of phrase. If, if yeah. you mean universal, I mean everyone holds it. Yeah. That yeah. We're, that there's people will disagree. Well, that there will not universal. There's no. I, what I'm saying is there's no universal truths in that. There will always be an exception to a rule. Right. I mean, there's low resolution truth. Like the way a blurry photograph is not inaccurate. Yeah. It's just like there. It's obviously out of focus and. 
there's always going to be something that shifts it one way to the other and makes it more clear in certain mm -hmm. situations. Like I like to use the, that analogy of the low-resolution photograph because it's not wrong. It's just not fully true. Yeah. Right. Right. No. Right. Yeah. There was. That, yeah. There was the. I forget what class it was on. Con law. This is a terrible place to have. But there was. <laughs> I want to say con law. It might have been a different class where. There was a case where they were uh, charged for with murder, and it was basically four people, and they were on a they were uh, in the middle of the ocean on a boat. They'd run out of food, and oh, they right. killed yeah, someone yeah, and yeah, yeah, ate yeah. one of them. Right. And that everyone, was yeah, a crim law. Everyone yeah. in the room is shocked and appalled. <laughs> and uh, Professor Dane says, "Would any of you have done that?" And me and one other guy raised their hand. We were like, yes, I would rather eat someone than die. Uh, sorry. But like, it, and so, like, is cannibalism wrong? Absolutely. Unless it means saving my life. Because then I will eat someone. Well, but, I mean, there's a distinction here. It's not just cam cannibalism, but it's murder followed by cannibalism. Like, you're not just eating someone who, who died. Yeah. You are murdering them f so that you can eat them. Right. It's That's different. So you're, I agree. You're, you're, I, my point was to cannibalism, not to the murder. I'll still say the murder's wrong. Okay. Yeah. Mm. The, Even then. Yeah. So you wouldn't. So you'd starve rather than kill them. I, I'm not a big fan of dying. Just putting it out there. I, I don't know. I don't I'm know sure, what I would. I'm, sure, I'm yeah. sure neither is the other person. Yeah. I don't know what I would do in the situation yeah. at that point. Uh, that I think that would be where Darwin would come in. <laughs> yeah. The the. Uh, but I don't know. Again, <laughs> again, it was just an example of like my universal truth. There's always going to be a certain exception. Should you eat other humans? Absolutely not. Unless you're trapped on a desert island and that's the only way you can survive. So, I don't know. It was just a very outlandish point that I was trying to drive home, I guess. Yeah. Well... We're gonna, and on that note, we're gonna end on a Lord of the Flies <laughs> note. That's great. <laughs> All right. Nobody else. I'm gonna stand alone on the. Okay. Yeah. No. That's <laughs> Professor Breen. Thanks so much for your yeah. time. Oh, this thank has you. been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. Conversation. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. We reached out to the Vatican for comment, but we have not heard back. Jeff. He mentioned the statute of limitations has expired in most of these cases. Is is there any recourse then for so many of these victims? There is a bill on the table here in the Pennsylvania state legislature that could eliminate the statute of limitations for one year. So any victim could file a civil lawsuit regardless of age. Jeff. All right, Nikki Batiste leading us off tonight from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Nikki, thank you. You've been listening to Dialogue De Novo. Until next time, thanks for hearing us out. Dialogue De Novo is produced by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Executive producers Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Supervising producer Michael Cotton. Technical producers Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Edited by Richard Leibovitz. Audio mixed by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Music written by Jimmy Thomas. Music performed by Bobby Day. Dialogue De Novo is a Loyola University Chicago School of Law student-initiated capstone project founded by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Technical production made possible by SoundCloud. Copyright 2018.